the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So what was the significance of Jesus' visit to Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Join us and find out next on Abounding Grace. Here in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, Jesus responds to the Pharisees about the coming of the kingdom of God. Wrapped up in this explanation is also an explanation of the significance of Jesus' visit to Jerusalem back in 70 A.D. How does it fit in with what's important for you and I today? Well, that's the question we hope to answer for you. Please join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner now from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Jesus went to Jerusalem just before his death. And Luke continues in our text to mark the fact that this is the last phase of Jesus' life. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die, to accomplish the salvation of his people. But Jesus also went to Jerusalem after his resurrection, And he did so in a mighty display of his power to prove that he alone sits at God's right hand by destroying Jerusalem for its unbelief. And that is the background of our text that we are looking at today. This is another one of those difficult passages to interpret. I read and I read and I read and I read. And I had a bit of difficulty coming up with what I think is a correct interpretation. But I am a bit confident that I was successful because after reading Matthew Henry's commentary, he actually agrees with me, as well as I had the pleasure to read, to listen to a couple of sermons over the last week and a half that confirm that what I have to say, others agree with. So... What makes this passage so difficult is trying to figure out what Luke's time frame is. What event does this passage make reference to? Is it truly referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. by the Romans, which brought the Jewish nation to a violent end? Or does it refer to the second coming of Christ at the very end of history, as many truly believe? And what is the biblical way of trying to come up with the answer? Because it all depends on our conclusion as how it should be applied to our lives. So in order to answer these questions and figure out to which event it refers, we must do two things. We must interpret Scripture by Scripture, and more particularly interpret this text in light of a previous text that we've already studied in Luke 12, 35 through 59, that talks about the coming of Christ and what that meant in the Gospel of Luke. 
And then secondly, we must carefully examine the text before us for any details that might specify what event is being considered. So what I am doing now is showing you how I interpret the Bible and prepare a sermon. It's actually how we should all interpret Scripture to try and come to a conclusion concerning a certain passage. So let's begin to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Back in chapter 12, verses 35 through 39, Jesus is concerned with his disciples being ready and prepared for his coming. And if you remember, when we looked at that passage, we saw that in Luke, the coming of Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God are inseparable. They are connected and they actually refer to several things. The coming of the kingdom and the coming of Christ refer to his incarnation. They refer to his victory over Satan in the wilderness. They refer to his resurrection, the day of Pentecost, and his coming to Jerusalem in 70 AD to destroy it. They also refer to him coming to a church through the preaching of the word by the power of the Holy Spirit to bless his people. They refer to his providential intervention into life to defeat his enemies and to rescue and exalt his people. And ultimately and finally, they refer to his second coming at the end of the world. So what I want us to see now, before we go on, is that the coming of Christ can refer in the book of Luke to Christ coming to Jerusalem to destroy it. Not coming literally and physically to destroy it, but coming invisibly and providentially to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman armies. Why? Because of its rejection of Christ as the Messiah. The coming of Christ can mean his intervention into your life and mine and the life of nations and cultures to destroy ungodly people and to save godly people. And it can also refer to Christ's second coming. The first proof of Christ reigning over all things is the destruction of Jerusalem, which was the sign that he was truly reigning in heaven, exercising his royal authority in the judging of unbelieving Jews. So now let's look at our text, chapter 17, verses 20 through 35 to see if there is anything in the text itself to help us understand which event Luke is talking about. But as we do, remember that Matthew 24 and 25 are the paramount text on the coming of Christ in the Gospels. Every other text on the subject should be interpreted always in light of Matthew 24 and 25. And in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35, after prophesying in those verses the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus said in verse 34, I truly, truly say to you, this generation shall not pass until all these things take place. 
And that tells us that everything he has just spoken about in the first 33 verses relate not to some future event like the second coming, but something more like the fall of Jerusalem that would take place in the lives of the first century hearers. Then, in verse 36, you have a transition in Matthew 24 to a new subject in his message. And it begins with a very strong conjunction in Greek, but, in which he switches his subject from the fall of Jerusalem. He's finished with this subject now. And now he is talking about the second physical coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of history. And he goes on with that through 24 to Matthew 25, 31, and he says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with them, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, if you happen to have Matthew 24 in front of you, notice that in verse 22, he describes the events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem. Now, this is important. It may at first sound boring, but we have to cover this stuff to help you understand the fall of Jerusalem. In, and in verse 22, he describes the events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem as those days, plural. Then in verse 36, he speaks of the second coming of Christ as that day and hour. But he speaks in verses 1 through 35 of signs of a local disaster. And he says, head for the hills. Get out of town. This is going to be a terrible situation. The answer to the disciples' question in verse 3, when will these things be, has reference to Jesus' statement in verse 1, where it says, Not one stone here at the temple in Jerusalem shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. They ask him when this is going to take place. And it takes Jesus 35 verses to explain it to them. Then beginning with verse 36, he starts talking about the second coming to answer their second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So we see Matthew 24 as our gauge to help us understand this event. The first 35 verses deal clearly with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and verse 36 down through chapter 25 deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So now we come to chapter 17 of Luke, which obviously has similar language in it as to Matthew 24, except there is one problem for an interpreter, and that is that in these verses he blends language and the references together from both sections of Matthew 24. That is, he takes some of the language of the first 35 verses dealing with the fall of Jerusalem and some of the language dealing with the coming of Christ, and he blends them together, speaking of the same event. But rather than us seeing this as a careless mixture of references by Luke, 
we must understand that Jesus used the same language and metaphors and parables for a variety of audiences many times, which sometimes had different nuances and different meanings in each of the locations. Although he used similar language on different occasions, he did not always intend to give that language the same meaning on some of those occasions. And that is the case in our text. So the question becomes, what do we do? Well, I believe we do this. The language that Jesus uses regarding the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, similar to that in Matthew 24, makes it impossible for him to be referring to the second coming in Luke 17. Because in Luke 17, you have Jesus saying things that just cannot apply to the second coming. And at the same time, Jesus uses language from Matthew 24 about the final coming of Jesus, and he applies it to his providential coming in Jerusalem in 70 AD because of the similarity of those two events. For example, In Luke 17, verses 20 through 21, he speaks of the coming of the kingdom in the present tense. He's not talking about some far-off future event. In verses 22 through 25, Jesus is speaking of things that will happen in the first century to the Jewish nation. And in verse 26, there is a very telling phrase... He speaks of the day plural of the Son of Man. That plural, days, was used in reference to the fall of Jerusalem back in Matthew 24. And consistently throughout Scripture, the second coming of Christ is not referred to as the days of the Son of Man, but as the day of the Son of Man. In verse 31, he warns people to quickly get out of Jerusalem when the coming takes place with its accompanying destruction. That would have nothing to do with the second coming. For what would be the use of getting out of Jerusalem when Christ comes the second time? In verses 34 through 7, after saying, When Christ comes, two men who will be in one bed, one man will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. The disciples asked the question, Where, Lord? That is, where will they be taken? Jesus answers them with a metaphor indicating that they will be taken to judgment and destruction like the people before the flood and like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he ends where the dead body is, there also will be the vultures. There will the vultures be gathered. And the word vulture in Greek can be just as easily translated eagles, which very well could be a reference to the insignia of the Roman army and the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, what is the relation? You've got to think back previous now. What is the relation between the passage we looked at last week, especially the healing of the lepers, 
and our text today. Remember I said a few weeks ago that all of this fits together. So how does last week's sermon fit with this week's sermon? The miraculous healing and saving of the leopards by Jesus is proof positive that the kingdom of God has come into human history. That's what his miracles were self-evident testimonies of. His kingdom has come with all of its rescuing, saving, and transforming power. And now Jesus wants to clear away some popular Jewish misconceptions about his kingdom and the coming of his kingdom so that they will correctly understand what he is calling people to so they will appreciate the urgency of the situation that they are in. Now, what misconceptions is he trying to clear away? Well, the majority of Jews in Jesus' day had probably heard or read statements in the intertestamental apocalyptic writings prophesying of an immediate coming of the Messiah that would establish a literal kingdom on earth spectacularly and which would include the destruction of their Roman oppressors. And the burning questions the Pharisees had was, when will these things take place? And what will be the sign that this literal political kingdom is being set up and the Roman Empire overturned? So let's try to understand prayerfully what Jesus is telling us here as he gives these startling answers to the Pharisees and then see if we can apply them to our own lives. Verses 20 and 21, the last part first of verse 20 tells us, the kingdom of God will not come with observable and spectacular pomp pomp and circumstances. For it says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here, it is there, it is here, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst." They were looking for some spectacular event to take place to prove that the kingdom of God was being established over the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, the reason why God's kingdom will not come with an observable display of pomp and circumstance is because the kingdom of God is already here. It is already delivering people from the realm of death. It's already healing people. It's already saving people. It's already judging people. The kingdom of God is in your midst or among you. Now, some people make a big deal and try to translate that phrase, in your midst or among you, as within you, as you heard me just read a few minutes ago. But the particular Greek words used here cannot be translated accurately, can be uh, translated accurately in that context within you. But it cannot be translated as such in our text. It has to say the kingdom of God is in your midst and not the kingdom of God is within you. 
because the kingdom of God was not in the heart of the Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking. It was not in their hearts. They were in rebellion against him. So what Jesus is saying is there will be no external signs to attract people's attention. The kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. I'm here, said Jesus. Matthew Henry said, The person of Christ and his disciples is proof that the kingdom of God has come, and the Pharisees did not perceive it. It was as Jesus was saying, The kingdom of God is among you, and you're not even aware of it. Unquote. You are not aware that it's already begun to be set up in your midst, Pharisees. The gospel is being preached and it is being confirmed by miracles. It is being embraced by multitudes of people so that it is in your nation, but not in your hearts. Therefore, Pharisees, repent or perish. And that still applies today, by the way. It is here just as if and or just as if not more so as it was in Jesus' day. It is here, not in spectacular happenings, but in the quiet secret transformation of human hearts from within, which transformation does sometimes have very dramatic effects. Then in verses twenty two through twenty five, Jesus tells them that the perfection of the kingdom that you're looking for is not close at hand. Completion of world missions and persecution must come first. Let's look at verses 22 through 25. And he said to the disciples, The day shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, look there. Don't go away, don't run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now notice what he says in verse 22. The day shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, remember how we are interpreting this passage. We are interpreting as a key, linking it with the fall of Jerusalem. There will be a time when you long to see Jesus come, along with all the events that take place with reference to the fall of Jerusalem, but you won't see it. Now, what's going to happen at the fall of Jerusalem that they long for? It is the destruction of their apostate enemies, the destruction of their Jewish persecutors, and the beginning of the massive movement into the kingdom of God that would continue for centuries so that people, as we learned a few Sundays ago, would take the kingdom of God by storm. Beloved, that would have been a great day to preach when Jerusalem fell, just as Jesus predicted it, exactly as he prophesied it. 
Wouldn't it have been great after the fall of Jerusalem to be able to preach the gospel and say, here is proof positive that Jesus reigns because what he said came true in a powerful way. Repent and believe the gospel and then watch the people take the kingdom by storm. He says, you are going to long for that day. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, post mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 